The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in the automotive industry and its supporting ecosystem and help them move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to help make the world a better place, it's time to run or drive, in this case, with the Game Changers, and this is the right place. What's the buzz today? Well, here's an interesting quote I found in an article from last year written by Stephen Shankland at CNET.com. The title of the article is AI Expert, Super Smart Cars Are Just a Glorious Beginning. He was interviewing Sebastian Thrun, T-H-R-U-N, the president of Udacity. After all that lead up here, is the quote, prepare for your car to become an intellectual giant and for you to like it. They didn't have an exclamation point at the end of that, but I think it deserved one. So what are we talking about? Sensors are everywhere and data is growing exponentially. As I speak, it's just growing and growing. If we harness the resulting treasure trove of data to create artificial intelligence in our cars, that's right, AI coming to a car near you, the cars might learn to think for themselves and operate totally autonomously, very, very safely and very, very efficiently. So what happens to us? The humans, will we just be riding along as cargo packaged in the back seat, maybe with a sticker on our forehead, number 42300, destination, uh, Orlando, Florida, destination, Paris, France, or will our smart vehicles become an extension of us as humans? All very interesting topics. We have assembled a panel of true experts. We always do on this show, but they're really true experts because they're really into this topic. Let me tell you who they are, and then we'll get started with their opening quotes. We are so pleased to welcome back a gentleman who hasn't been on for quite a while. It's Joe Barkai. He's an automotive industry analyst, author, and blogger, and he reminded me that he covers multiple industries, but he's here because of his focus on automotive. Joining Joe on the panel is one of our regulars here, Heather Ashton, research manager, I. IDC Manufacturing Insights at IDC. Delighted to have her back. And rounding out the panel is the gentleman who sponsors this series, Larry Stoley, Senior Director of Automotive Global Marketing at SAP. So happy to have the three of you on. So let's start. Joe Barkai sent me the following quote. I'll read it in a second. And the quote is from Paul Sappho, young man born in 1954. That's easy for me to say. He's a technology forecaster based in Silicon Valley. And I was tickled when I read this because we think of him, his title is a futurist, but now he's called a tech forecaster. He's a consulting professor in the School of Engineering at Stanford University. He teaches courses on the future of engineering and the impact of technological change on the future. He has degrees from Harvard, Cambridge University, and Stanford. Here is the quote, never mistake a clear view for a short distance. Joe Barkai, delighted to have you back. How have you been? 
Hi, Bonnie. I've been great. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. We are delighted. Talk to me. Are you a big fan or follower of Mr. Paul Sappho? How did you find the quote? Uh, well, um, in addition to the other vices you described uh, when you used to describe <laughs> me, I've also been in, in AI as a practitioner for many, many years. So I'm always curious to get perspective from others about how they view, uh, I would call it technology-centric visions, including AI. Uh, but I, I, you know, I walk around with many scars on my back from developing successful and not so successful AI systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can relate to the observation, whereas we can often have a clear view or we think we have a clear view of, of, uh, of a solution or a brave new world. Uh, we often underestimate uh, the, the difficulty in getting there. So, so okay. to me, this quote, um, it's, it's beyond just the, the technology challenges. It's perhaps mm-hmm. the, the need to better understand implications of society, on individuals, uh, and the value of solution in the long run. Joe, I got a real kick out of this quote because let me read it again. Never mistake a clear view for a short distance. Here on Long Island, actually in uh, just over the line, I'm in Nassau County, over the line from the borough of Queens, one of the five New York City boroughs, we have a place called, a, a, a street, a road, called the Clearview Expressway. And it very often has traffic. So when the quote says, never mistake a clear view for a short distance, you're very often stuck in traffic in the Clearview. So I'm, I'm sorry, I just had to add that. Joe, are you familiar with the roadways on Long Island? Uh, to some extent. Um, it's been a while. I lived in, 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 the, in the city uh, many years ago. I think traffic then was already pretty bad. But again, yeah, pretty so bad. I think it's kind of, it's, yeah. So, I, I, you know, the, the analogy of a distance is kind of very relevant to our conversation about um, automotive, but it's obviously it's really not about automotive specifically. Yes. It, and it's really not about unanticipated technical challenges as much as, again, uh, we need to understand the potential implications of certain technologies on, on, of, of vision-centered, uh, on vision-centered of, on new technologies, both good and bad, uh, on both individual and society. And this is, I think, what Paul Sappho means. Yes. Thank you, Joe. Very interesting and very profound quote. We appreciate that. Now let me get to Heather Ashton waiting patiently. Heather has sent us a quote from a gentleman named Eric Horvitz, H-O-R-V-I-T-Z. He's the head of research at Microsoft and uh, very, very interesting. I did a little look up on him, Heather. You knew I would. He's, uh, he's a young one as well, age 59, and he is director of Microsoft's Building 99 Research Lab in Redmond, Washington. And Heather, I'm just going to do a sidebar. I think you'll appreciate this. Maybe you've heard it. He gave each of his employees a copy of David McCullough's book, The Wright Brothers. Quote, I said to them, please read every word of this book, Horowitz says, tapping the table to highlight each syllable. He wanted them to read the story of the Wright brothers' determination to show them what it takes to invent an entirely new industry. In some ways, Horowitz's own career in artificial intelligence has followed a similar trajectory for nearly 25 years. He has endeavored to make machines as capable as humans. And that's from an article by Dave Gershgon uh, written just this month, May, well, last month, May 2nd. To 2017. So here is the quote. I'm getting to it, Heather. Here's the quote that Heather is selected from Eric Horvitz. Quote, we know so little about the magic of the human mind. Heather, love the quote. How are you? I'm great, Bonnie. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Did you know that uh, Eric Horvitz had given his staff the book, The Wright Brothers? I had read that in my, um, once I found the quote that I liked and I kind of did a little 
sleuthing on him. Um, and of course, the, the story of the Wright brothers is one of my favorites because we used to vacation down in the Outer Banks. So at, at a very young age, I went to the museum and that really became um, one of, you know, the, the um, memories for me, you know, growing up. And then I actually did a number of research reports on it in school. So, um, so yes, that, nice. their determination. And I love, uh, I love the kind of the humanity that he's bringing to the pursuit of technology and that notion of determination. That is a human um, that is a human capability um, that you really can't say that uh, that machines have. So I, I, I really appreciate that, and and it really does come back to this um, the quote that we you know we know so little about the magic of the human mind. Here's somebody who's dedicated their entire life to artificial intelligence, to making machines smart, helping machines to be able to learn and to simulate what humans do. But at the end of the day, we still know so little about the human brain, and we we really have as a result, are not going to be able to completely mimic the human mind, um, primarily because we're sentient. We, we follow, we're subjective, we follow our feelings, we follow our emotions, like determination. And that's what makes us special, that's what makes us different. But that's also what makes it so complex and complicated and challenging to um, pursue artificial intelligence and to try to, you know, enable artificial intelligence to change the world, in, including automotive and, and cars. Absolutely. And, and Heather, I read the quote and I see so many layer, layers and levels to it. We know so little about the magic. The magic of the human mind is could be construed as we, the humans, want to create an artificial intelligence that can, in fact, make us more intelligent. And that's my... You agree with that? Yeah, I think that's interesting. And you know that um, Elon Musk, that's one of his ideas, right, is to actually implant the sensors into our human brains so that we can um, become smarter and, and, you know, infuse ourselves with artificial intelligence. So, it, yeah, it can go in so many different directions. And you know what, Heather? That's a perfect segue for my lead-in to the quote that Larry Stoley has sent me. Larry is, again, Senior Director of Automotive Global Marketing at SAP. And Larry has selected a quote from Ginny Romity, R-O-M-E-T-T-Y. She's the CEO, President, and Chairman of IBM. Uh, she's a young one also, born in 1957. I'm feeling older by the minute here. Uh, she was named Chairman, President, and CEO of IBM in January 2012. That was ooh, a little over five years ago, the first woman to head the company, and Bloomberg named Romedy among the 50 most influential people in the world. Fortune named her among the 50 most powerful women in business for 10 consecutive years. And she was actually featured three years ago in 2014 in a PBS documentary, The The Boomer List, and became the third female member of the Augusta National Golf Club. I'm sure that was a great honor for her. And Fortune in 2015 ranked her third most powerful women on their list. So here's the quote, and here's what I was trying to lead into. Ginny Romady says, Some people call this artificial intelligence, but the reality is that this technology will enhance us. So instead of artificial intelligence, I think we will augment our, I'm going to put parenthetically human, on parent intelligence. Larry Stoley, great quote following up on the quote that Heather Ashton shared with us. How are you, Larry? I am good, and good to be back. Yes, I know, and here we are. I met you at Sapphire in Orlando. Was it just about four weeks ago, three weeks ago, Larry? Yeah, about four weeks ago, I think, yeah. And how was your gig at Sapphire? What did you do? Busy, busy. I had responsibility for all 25 uh, SAP industries at Sapphire, so uh, got a world of exposure to things beyond automotive, and uh that comes with the exposure to a lot of different people, a lot of different thoughts, and I have to say I'm a better person for it. 
I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. It was uh, quite a challenge. I was there, as you know, and yep. I did, what did I, I spoke with 53 guests, and we did 33 interviews in under three days, starting Tuesday at 11 a.m. and finishing up, I think we were the last ones out of the conference center Thursday evening around 7 p.m., so it was certainly interesting, and we videotaped, Larry, we streamed the videos live of the radio interviews. I didn't know people wanted to see radio, but apparently they did because the videos <laughs> are doing doing very well. Must have been the red hair. I don't know. So, Larry, talk to me about this quote. I, I assume you followed Ginny Romady as a leader in the automotive industry. Well, do you agree with what she's saying? We will augment our intelligence. Well, this, this quote is, is interesting to me because very few times in a person's life do you have the opportunity to quote someone you actually know. So, in my past, I spent quite a number of years at IBM, have a few patents there. IBM was always about patents. Uh, had a few conversations and, and personal interactions with Jenny Rometty, and, uh, you know, the quote just jumped out at me because, hey, it's somebody I knew. Second off, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting quote because it said, don't be scared of it. You know, it, it's going to enhance our capabilities, our senses, you know, our ability to get things done, our ability to think, and so on and so forth. And, and I fully agree with that. I think it's going to enhance our li- artificial intelligence, going to enhance, enhance our lives, everything we do. But, you know, there, there's, there's a fear rising up in me about this. And, mm. you know, it's the flip side of quotes sometimes that we need to think about. And, you know, Joe and Heather really set me up very nicely for this one. Um, the fear I have is that as artificial intelligence grows in its capability, as it grows in its understanding, it grows in, as it grows in its ability to enhance our lives, what is going to happen to the human brain? Will some of the skills that we have today, driving a car, for example, regress? Will they atrophy? Will we lose some of the skills that we've developed over many, many years, some of the very specialized skills? Will we lose those to artificial intelligence, and will mankind be less uh, less than we are today. So just just a flip side fear that uh, kind of jumped out and grabbed me from Jenny's quote. Very interesting, Larry. And, you know, the, the concept I usually hear, or the question I hear from people when I mention that I host a radio show, many business radio shows, and one is the future of cars, the first thing people say to me is, oh, automotive, smart cars, autonomous driving sounds great if it's going to be safe, but what happens to the people who had jobs in the auto industry, the people who are professional drivers, bus drivers, cab drivers? Can you just address that, Larry? People almost hit me on the side of the head and say, yeah, so, so what's technology going to do with all these? What are they going to do in their daytime? What are they going to do in their lifetime if they don't have jobs anymore? What's the answer? Well, you know, you know, Bonnie, make no mistake about it. Technology, you know, you can talk about borders, you can talk about trade policies, you can talk about offshoring and so on and so forth uh, as destroying jobs and so on, but the fact remains, technology itself is the greatest destroyer of jobs there is. And destroyer is not necessarily a, a bad term. Uh, it, it, it's a realignment of jobs. I think we have to look at things as an opportunity to realign ourselves, particularly in, in, in uh, the U.S. It, it jumps out at me. The, the labor is no longer the important thing. The innovation is the important thing. So, you know, I, I fully see us moving from 
a labor-based economy, truck drivers, assemblers, manufacturers, and so on, to an innovation-based economy where, uh, you know, ideas are the the, uh, currency uh, that we need to focus on. So I see it certainly as a downside for some people who Mm -hmm. uh, can't make the leap, but I also see it as a tremendous opportunity for people who take the challenge and rise to that challenge to re-educate themselves, to do new things, and to uh, move to that innovation economy that uh, I see is, uh, you know, facing us right now. Thank uh, you, Larry. If I may add yes. to, Joe, sure. may add to Atelier's point, when we look at AI and similar technologies at a very high level, we can divide the space into two major areas. One of them would be augmentation of human capabilities, which is a little bit like the what Jenna Rometty, Rometty meant, versus technologies used to replace humans, such as robots, such as maybe autonomous trucks and so on. So even though there's some overlap between the two, one is not the other. Uh, and when you talk about replacement, then of course, you know, we've seen the uh, previous technical, uh, technological revolutions displacing jobs. Uh, this time for a change, by the way, we sort of understand where the things will, will go. Previous uh, revolutions were understood only after the fact. This one, we understand mm-hmm. this, and we know that robots are already replacing people. Drivers perhaps will have to reskill and so on, and there are going to be many other sectors that will have to be uh, to reskill. So it's really that. It's not China taking away our jobs. Uh, but at the same time, let's look at the upside. Uh, let's look at the autonomous driving, perhaps assisting the aging population, the disabled, those that do not have capabilities to, to drive or move themselves, as it were, to other areas. Let's think about autonomous driving as um, shortening the gap, the distance between individuals and public transit, what we call in, in mobility the first and last mile. So there are many upsides to that as well. But yes, there are going to be some, some risks and some, some part of society will, will suffer, no doubt. Yes, yes, and that's what happens with change, any kind of change. Thank you, Joe. And while I have you, Joe, it's time for us to go to our what's in your cup today and where are you calling from round. So, Joe, where are you domiciled or where are you sitting today? What part of the world? And what are you drinking right now if it's fun and interesting? If not, what would you rather be drinking? Joe Barkai. <laughs> um, so I'm just outside of Boston, um, as, as always. Um, I started very early today because some of my business is overseas, so I always have to, to adjust to people in China and India and other places. So I still have some remnants of uh, Ili Espresso. So nothing exciting, that's what I have. But because I have this um, opportunity then, I really, I'm doing some research on technologies and uh, how technology is used to uh, manage scarce resources. So I have a Trivia question, if you allow me. How much yeah. water do you think was used to, to reach, to make, to prepare this kind of eight-ounce cup of coffee? Any, anyone has an, even a guess of how much water was required for that? Hmm. So I'm going to give you the answer. It's really not about... <laughs> wait, wait, wait. wait. Heather, right? Heather, do you want to answer it? Heather, Heather or Larry? I'll, say ten, Any clue? I'll, I'll, give, you, yeah, I'll give you a sticking point. I mean, a point in the, in the ground. Ten gallons. Okay. Larry? Larry? No idea. No idea. So I'm um, going to say one gallon. I'm going to say one gallon. Okay, so no, Heather is absolutely in the right direction. She underestimated it, but Heather in the right direction. Lots of water. There's a company called TrueCost that calculates the you know, sustainability data, uh, so it can tell you how much water was used to create, to make one T-shirt, one cup of coffee. So one cup of coffee is about, it's 135 liters, which is about um, 30 gallons. 
So Heather was absolutely <laughs> heading in the right direction. And most of the water, of course, was not used to make the cup of coffee itself, but rather to grow the beans, to soak them during manufacturing and processing and so on. So that's my uh, coffee trivia for the day. Well, thank you. Liters or Wonderful. Gallons. We don't usually get coffee trivia on the show, other than the trivia that I look up when people tell me interesting <laughs> drinks. So thank you for that, Joe. We might have to start a coffee trivia corner. I don't know. Well, I'll, 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 can, I'll canoodle with, uh, with uh, Heather and Larry and see if we want to add that to the series. Thank you, Joe. And is it rainy and kind of drippy up in Boston like it is yes, here on Long yes. Island? It's gray. It's yep. gray and raining and, and, and cold. Yeah, yeah, not too cool. Not no cool, but not too nice. And let's turn to Heather. Heather, you're in the Boston area today, I assume. Yes, I yes, I am. Yes, so I'm sharing that drizzle, rainy, dreary. It's essentially a nor'easter, which doesn't sound as wonderful when it's rain instead of snow. <laughs> so, um, so when we hear that, of course, you know, I turn to my hot cup of coffee with the um, with the almond milk. I make it frothy in my frother um, because I I need to be cheered up today and. As we, I think I heard the, the weather people say that we potentially might hit a record today, but not in the right direction for the coldest day uh, on June 6th. I think it was uh, 40, 48 degrees um, back in 1945, or 45 degrees in 1945, and we might actually uh, match that today. So not a great thing, but at least I have my warm, frothy cup of almond milk coffee. Warm, frothy sounds good to me. And Larry Stoley, where are you and what are you drinking? I'm in my home office. The weather here is, is really nice. The sun is shining. Um, you know, it's, I drink Folgers. I drink black Folgers, Bonnie. I'm not exciting. I'm not adventuresome and so on. But, you know, I will share with you, you know, I had a little dalliance with uh, putting my coffee in a Yeti cup, which kept it extremely hot for a long time. But I found out that I drink it fast enough that the Yeti, keeping it hot, kind of in a material because I'm filling the coffee cup up. So I reverted to my Rocky Mountain National Park coffee cup that's been my mainstay for 20 years. I haven't broken it. I haven't chipped it. I haven't done anything but drink out of it for 20 years. It's my friend. So that's my coffee story for today. <laughs> it's your friend. I haven't heard anybody claim their coffee cup is their friend. But, you know, Larry, I, every time I tell newcomers to the Game Changers radio shows what we do in this segment, I always quote you and I say, Larry has a Yeti mug. It keeps the hot drinks <laughs> hot and the cold drinks cold, and that's Larry Stoley's thing. And yeah. so we're going to have to talk about something else when I quote you. Thank you very much. Well, all I'm drinking, as the three of you know, is water in a cool, clear mug. With uh, It came from a Brit filter and I don't I don't know how many gallons came into just getting me the six ounces of water but I have a pink straw in optimistic hope that we will see the sun again here soon in New York and that's all I have to say so we're going to come back in just about 90 seconds with a very interesting I promise you that very interesting and rousing and compelling roundtable our topic today if you haven't guessed my goodness what have you been doing if you haven't guessed it's AI that's artificial intelligence and machine learning coming to a smart car near you. Joe Barkai, our industry analyst, Heather Ashton at IDC Manufacturing Insights, and Larry Stoley at SAP Automotive are joining me here on The Future of Cars with Game Changers. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I plan to be after the break. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. You know the drill. Kevin out. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
SAP is excited to be a co-innovator with the automotive industry as we help automotive and related companies digitally transform their entire industry and disrupt their existing business models. The Future of Cars with Game Changers brings you insights from the people in the driver's seat who are making this happen. We'll delve into industry challenges and solutions that support ecosystem industries, all to help you succeed in transforming your business and business networks for success in the new digital networked age. Tune in to the Business Channel to hear today's top technology and business strategy thought leaders share expert insights on how the automotive industry is shaping the future of change for all of us. For women, the pressure to achieve is stronger, the work hours longer, and the struggle for respect and authority more complex than ever. You want guidance on how to succeed, and you are not alone. You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern for our special series, Game Changing Women. Powerful women leaders will help you make sense of it all, analyze how you can change the game, and share their playbooks. Game Changing Women, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of cars with Game Changers. Indeed, here we are. We are seeing the future of cars right now this very second. Oops. The future just happened, and it's now the past. What can I say? Uh, Joe Barkai, our automotive industry analyst, author, blogger, consultant, and everything else, has sent me the following topic in his notes. We're going to start the roundtable here. Let me read a little bit, Joe, and then you'll run with it. Then we will invite Heather and Larry to chime in with their thoughts. So Joe says, rapid developments in AI, that's artificial intelligence, and related fields, creates lots of buzz, expectations, and fears. Let me read one more line. In the automotive space, the views range from a paradise of crash-free, congestion-free highways, oh, we can only dream, to cars programmed to kill innocent bystanders in order to protect the car's owner. Oh, my. Sounds like a mystery novel or a high-tech drama. Joe, tell us more. Yeah, and this statement sort of represents a whole spectrum of opinions. Um, too many of them are somewhat ill-informed about where new technology, AI-specific technologies, uh, will get into the automotive. And I always remind myself that automotive is really mobility because it's not only about personal cars, it's about trucks, it's about uh, public transit and so on. Um, so we are, we are really seeing tremendous improvement, uh, tremendous progress in AI-related technologies. And as a practitioner, I really envy the progress because when I started in the field, we did not have the computing power. We, don't have, we did not have distributed, distributed computing based in, um, in the cloud, etc. So we were really struggling to implement complex algorithms. Now many of those come very, very you know, easily, almost for free. Um, so we are seeing how technology potentially can, in, can improve safety of cars even before we get to autonomous driving, how eventually we'll get to the point that cars perhaps are autonomous, and autonomous does not equate driverless. Uh, and then at some point, perhaps even driverless cars. So we, we see that 
as, as, as the, the direction that drives our progress. Um, so this potentially will lead to what I, the quote you just read, my, or my note you just read about crash-free, congestion-free highways. At the same time, we know and we read a lot about the difficulties in implementing those systems, those, those algorithms, because it runs into many conflicts that are uh, very human-centric in nature. So my point of view here is that we are not really ready in terms of society acceptance for vehicles that make these kind of autonomous um, decisions on, on the road. So I really wanted to maybe pause here because this is a broad statement and maybe have a, a conversation with my colleagues on, on that. Sure, of course. I was about to invite Heather in. So Heather, thoughts on this? What do you see? I would I would definitely agree with you, Joe. I think that um, we aren't really ready. I think we're all talking about sort of that, um, you know, the perfect the perfect ideas, right? That that AI, as we talked about, can pre- you know present in the situation of connected car, replacing your long commute, enabling you to do something else. But you know, when it really comes down to it, I don't think we're at a stage yet where um, the technology can really fully deliver what we as humans want it to um, in the car, in the cockpit, in, you know, in the actual, um, the experience of the, dri- of the drive. Larry Stolle, what do you see? Uh, depend- you know, I, I look at it and I think about, okay, what's the definition of we? Is that society in total? Uh, if we're talking about society in, in the bigger sense of we, absolutely we're not ready. You know, not only are there diehards who, who like to drive, but there are people who just don't accept the technology, never will. There are other things society... Uh, dictates, you know, congestion, it, it, really an interesting word that Joe used, congestion. You know what? Autonomous vehicles, driverless vehicles, if they're not going to help with congestion, that's just not going to happen. We talked about that. There are too many, too many things in society. The other thing that, that was, you know, key to me and, and what uh, Joe said initially was that how do we teach machines to care? Are they purely clinical? If the ones and the O's add up to go right or go left in this particular situation, they're going to do it. But humans have the ability to do things based on instinct, based on caring and so on. So, you know, there's a whole lot of way, uh, you know, to go yet before we're really able to take full advantage of autonomous vehicles to move to driverless vehicles and so on. So I'm ready. I'm ready to, to, to look at this. I'm ready to jump. But I don't think if I'm part of the bigger we that I can really say that. So Heather Ashton, let's look at your notes here on the topic. Let's see. Um, let me read a couple of your topics, and I'm going to land on the third one, and that's where I want to go, Heather, okay, because the rest are very profound. So Heather says it's going to be challenging in the early days of AI machine learning for autonomous cars. That's a, a great statement. Number two, she says there are so many aspects of the moral human conscience that it will be difficult for machines to interpret and copy, number two. And here, I'm leading up to this, Heather. Number three, this is where we're going to land and discuss. She says, finding the right balance of interactions with humans inside the smart car cockpit will be a challenge. So, Heather, why don't you tell us more? Sure, and and you do. I'm glad you read those first two because it does, um, and it, it leads up to, and it also follows. I wanted to build. Yep, yeah, go ahead. exactly. Um, what Joe was talking about, um, you know, the, the practitioners of artificial intelligence, they call, they break it into two branches, weak artificial intelligence and strong. And the weak 
AI really is about what we're talking about, kind of mimicking, um, mimicking patterns, right? So pattern learning and being able to kind of, you know, re- recreate the patterns. Um, but the strong AI, which we're really not there yet technology-wise, is that ability to mimic what the human would do, kind of that instinct stuff that, you know, Larry's talking about. And we're, we're not there yet and we're not we're really not close because we don't understand fully the human brain. We haven't fully figured that out from a neuroscience perspective. Um, so in this case, when you talk about, you know, that weak versus strong AI and bringing that into the, the cockpit, so inside the car, if we're not yet able to really understand on a strong side what the humans are, you know, how they would respond, how, you know, some of those instinct or emotive kind of sides of human behavior, then how can you deliver an experience with technology that's going to make the human want to be part of it and want to use it? And, and the example that I, I gave um, was about uh, Alexa. So I have been using Alexa, mm-hmm. my in-home, you know, intelligent um, speaker for the past year. And I have to say, she frustrates me a lot. Uh, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't hear me well. She can't answer my questions. Um, so in many cases, I have just taken to, um, then I moved to Siri. So then I pull my phone up because Siri somehow seems to be able to process my natural language better. And Siri is in, in many of the connected cars today. But even Siri... Um, you know, when I talk to, you know, when I talk to early customers of the connected cars that are on the road today, where some of this intelligence is already coming into the car, into the cockpit and the experience, they all lament that it just isn't doing what they want it to do, meaning it's not quite there in terms of the human experience, the human response. So I feel that that's really the challenge that we're going to have is we're introducing these technologies, but they're not fully baked yet. And so that's going to dis- discourage the humans from wanting to adopt them. Heather, before I bring Larry in, I know Joe is back, and I'll tell Joe in a second where we've moved on, Joe. Um, Heather, doesn't a lot of this depend on who is doing the programming? I'm using a very old-fashioned word, perhaps. The coding of the AI, who is deciding what will be the human characteristics or what will be the empathy or the quote-unquote emotions, smart emotions of the car? I, I opened with, will it be, we be cargo as humans or will it be an extension of us, our smart cars? So doesn't this all decide depend on who is in charge of doing the programming and creating that human side of smart cars? Thoughts? Yeah, I definitely think that is that is definitely one major component of it is the who's doing the programming. The other side is a lot of this is being enabled by machine learning. So, and machine learning meaning, means you take the car or you take you know the machine, the brains of the car, and you you kind of set it down a path, and then you give it millions and millions of miles and experiences and hours and you know a lifetime or lifetimes of experiences, right, in a short period of time to make it smarter, to make it learn how to behave, how to respond, how to react. Well, the challenge there, of course, is. Again, not only with the programmer, like you said initially, but then with the machine learning, it depends on where that, where that experience is happening. It's happening on the same road, right, within the same radius, the same types of experiences. Well, that, you know, that, that brain of the car is not really going to become highly in, intelligent because it's being exposed to the same stimuli and the same, making the same responses. So it's learning, but it's learning a very vanilla path. And we know as humans that we are anything but vanilla. <laughs> so, um, so I think that, you know, that raises another challenge of all of this. Thank you. Larry Stoley, love to get your thoughts on this. Well, he- Heather said it. Humans are not vanilla. Um, you know, you can create the smartest, you can write the primer, you can, you know, write the algorithms that allow machines to learn. The, the challenge for me is that we're not all the same. 
What I feel comfortable doing, giving up, taking control of, and so on, is entirely different than Heather and is entirely different than Joe. Plus, we all have attitudes. Attitudes change throughout the day based on our mood, based on you know events that we don't control that impact us and so on. So now the question for me becomes, how do intelligent machines, machines that learn, artificial intelligence and so on, now learn all the things that they need to know to emulate my moods, my behaviors, my reactions in the new mobility world where we won't have the same machine for, for years and years like we do with our cars today. So I'm a little bit concerned here. I don't think a one-size-fits-all from a programming perspective is necessarily ever going to fit every human mentality. Interesting. It reminds me, Larry, I'm thinking of the, the quote that may or may not have been correctly attributed to Henry Ford. Uh, I can, they can have any kind of car they want as long as it's black, the original Model T Ford. And I'm yep. thinking back in the early days, it was a car. It was a novelty. It had wheels. It had a motor. You didn't have to pull it, push it, or attach a horse to it. It went. You put a, you poured it, put a key in, you crank something up, and it was a car. And who cared if it was red or green or yellow or how many windows it had or how big the trunk was? It was a car. And I'm wondering if in in the beginning, that the vanilla is all we're really going to get, because how fast can we expect the evolution to a smart car with empathy and that knows us? Larry, any quick comments? Because well, I'm ready to know, circle exactly around to Joe. Right? You know, are we yeah. moving to just better and higher level products? Is that still our thinking in, in the car business, or are we moving to mobility? If we're moving to mobility, doesn't matter. Black is fine. If we're still carrying the mantra of personalization, status, mm-hmm. and so on, then I think yep. we have an entirely different animal. Okay, different animal. Let's talk about that. Joe Barca, you dropped. We're so glad you're back. We missed you, Joe. And, Joe, we're talking now about, uh, you heard a little bit about the interaction of humans with cars. Heather's quote was, her comment was, finding the right balance of interaction with humans inside the smart car cockpit will be a challenge. Joe, what are your thoughts, please? Yeah, and I, and I do apologize. It's, you know, I tried three different lines, and they've all been disconnected. I'll blame someone else for that. I, I think yeah. there's some uh, misunderstanding uh, about machine learning and AI. And by the way, AI is not machine learning. They are very, you know, there are different mm-hmm. disciplines within a broader discipline. I, I, I think that it's not a matter of programming or even learning, uh, because even machine learning systems are really developed models. They don't mimic, they don't re- replay what they saw. So if, if, if those systems were just replaying what they have seen so far, the way Heather, I think, described it, then I can understand the concerns about, well, the car doesn't know this route or this behavior. I think that it's a bit deeper than that in terms of um, what these machines can do. Yet the question I agree with is, uh, are we trying to build systems that mimic human behavior? Is it really possible to do that? Uh, do we want it? Or are we looking for different approaches? And, and here you see... Companies in space taking very, very different approaches. You can see the, uh, and I'm going to use company names just as placeholders, not necessarily mm-hmm. pointing at them. But you look at Google, who is really taking um, a very kind of slow progress in the sense that they develop technologies and introduce them very, very slow, uh, slowly to the market in the hope of perfecting the technology or getting to the point that if the behavior of these cars is, is acceptable, uh, and then we introduce them to the market, whereas Tesla is ongoing playing with, with new algorithm do, do, um, and then make progress. And then some of them, I think I did the same, is kind of asking, are they using us as kind of uh, crash um, test dummies? 
Um, so it's really a matter of how we evolve those, the, our understanding of, of systems and interaction with, the, uh, with those systems. Uh, but I think back to the point, Bonnie, when you asked a question, then again I, I lost connection with you, is who is responsible for that, uh, whether it's uh, a, a deterministic system, you know, the old-fashioned programming, or even an AI-based system. Who is responsible for the behavior, good or bad behavior? Is it the company? Is it the programmer? Because the programmer is still responsible for machines making their own decisions. And not to get very too deep into this conversation, but uh, even an algorithm that says, you know, you learn and you affect something is a, a determination ahead of time what will a system do. And if you're, come from, uh, if you're an ethicist, you may say this is really a uh, predetermined course. This is uh, almost negligence, and, uh, and this is not a legal term. This is kind of an ethic, ethical term because this is a predetermined uh, path that the programmer gave to the, to, the, to the car. And I think that as we make for, progress forward, we will run into questions. Will society accept this kind of behavior? Or is our legal system ready to deal with those incidents, etc.? Thank you very much, Joe. Very insightful. And, yes, we're, we're covering a lot of aspects of this topic today. Heather, anything you want to wrap up before I move on and pick up a topic from Larry's list? No, I, think, I do think Joe brought in a really good point as well, is that we're talking sort of, you know, humans and ethics and decisions, um, but, but we have to put that in the context of the wider, um, you know, structure from a government perspective, from a regulation perspective, and that's going to definitely impact how quickly some of the, the AI components and aspects of connected cars um, are allowed to be adopted or are encouraged to be adopted, depending on, on the perspective, um, you know, who, who's making the rules and who's kind of setting those regulations. Thank you very much. Larry Stoley, I'm looking at your notes. We've covered a lot of these topics already, but let's talk about the car companies, Larry. Let's focus on them. We've been talking about the programmers and about the aspects of morality and the millions of miles that need to be driven for cars to, quote, unquote, learn, whether we will be cargo or the car will be an extension of us with empathy and caring. Let's talk about the car companies, their position, because I know you like to focus on that. Larry told me before his before the show in his notes, Quote, car companies are eager to discuss, in quotes, discuss technology, but they're not always in agreement on how such technology should be used. Larry, what's happening in the industry? Well, you know, you know it's interesting. The, the, the buzzword is autonomous. The buzzword is connected, and, and that's where everything's moving. That's the direction things are going to. I think, I think the industry itself is very much focused on something a little different than product in the past. In the past, we made vehicles, we sold vehicles, and that was the end of the story. Yes, we serviced them and so on, too, but at the end of the day, we built something, we sold it to someone, and hopefully if we did everything right along the way, we uh, that person re-entered the uh, brand decision again and bought another product. Today, it's, it's all about mobility. Uh, how do we provide transportation as a service? It's not about you know, the, the the vehicle, the style, and so on and so forth. Or is it? You know, we keep talking the mobility word in the industry, but, you know, we keep cranking out these beautiful products that are swoopy or stylish, more plush, have mm-hmm. more technology in them. Are we really talking out of both sides of our mouth in the industry? I think perhaps we just really haven't decided which side of the... Uh, uh, street we want to walk down, whether we walk down the product side or we walk down the, the mobility side. Some car companies are very, very clear. Um, some of the, the high-end Italian 
uh, like Ferrari and so on. We're not going to be self-driving. You know, we're going to be the thrill of driving. That means no self-driving. The human's in control. He or she will enjoy the thrill. So, you know, we've got a, a diverse range of, you know, how car companies are looking at this. But I think that one thing that drives car companies is that there is a threat of change, and they're trying to prepare themselves for the change towards mobility. Mark Fields, before he left Ford uh, earlier this mm-hmm. year, said it's not about, you know, the old way or the new way or so on. It's about a bigger way, a bigger business model. So I think car companies are, are really looking at things from uh, a position of hedging their bets. We're going to build product. We're going to build more and more into our product. But at the same time, we're going to make sure that our product is, is securely positioned for mobility as a service in the future. So kind of a, a double-edged sword, a double-edged thinking, you know. Uh, let's take some risks, but let's uh, make sure that the uh, uh, established ground that we've lived on for 100 years remains intact. Thank you, Larry. Good perspective. Joe Barker, I'd love to get your thoughts on what Larry just shared. I actually like it. I like the fact that the car makers have to make decisions, and I like the fact that some will make a decision to stay where they are and pick one side of the fork in the road, and others will not. I think this is kind of nature evolution. And so it's true that we still have the kind of brand and the emotional side of car, car manufacturing, so if it's the Ferrari and so on in the world. But at the same time, these companies are really based their, their, their life on, on the volume market. Uh, and then the volume market will be there for them for at least five or ten years, so I would not worry just yet. Uh, but eventually there will be a transition into new mobility, and I agree with Larry here, uh, and car makers will have to figure out their role there um, and, and what play they want to take. And then I think that they are beginning to see um, the change, and I, I hope they are understanding a threat to them because the volume market will be impacted. We'll see more and more um, companies getting into the microtransit business, which means maybe localized, um, locally made cars that provide specific services to, the, the, to a neighborhood or to a campus or to a factory. And that really means that the role of OEMs is really changing dramatically. It means that supply chain is changing. There's a fancy word that I sometimes struggle to pronounce, disintermediation. So we will see mm-hmm. disintermediation of the, of the supply chain in a way that threatens uh, the current uh, leaders in, in supply chain, the, the tier one suppliers, and the OEMs. So they'll have to make decisions. But I like it. I think this is what innovation should do, cause us to rethink our old ways. Thank you very much. Another profound statement from Mr. Barkai. Heather, love to get your thoughts on this. Chime in, please. Sure. Um, and I can point to some recent history uh, that I think illustrates what Larry and Joe are talking about. Um, within Specifically within the automotive companies, um, we have all are aware of the, the recent changes at Ford um, where they've uh, kind of replaced their uh, the CEO um, to be able to respond to some of the what what Bill Ford, the chairman of the company, called a splintering almost of the company culture. That whole one foot in today, which is, uh, you know, the new cars, the plush, the new models, you know, and one foot in tomorrow, which is the whole notion of mobility. And basically Ford said, Chairman Ford said, we don't want one group to feel like they're the cool group and the other group is left out. Um, So, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's the, the big challenge is that all these companies, they don't know what mobility is going to mean in the future, these automakers. So they're trying to kind of hedge their bets and, and go 
pursue kind of both directions and both avenues to see what the market uh, bears or market decides. Um, but that creates challenge and it creates um, you know, uncertainty in, in different ways and, and sometimes confusion uh, in the market. So, so I think that that's what the many of these automakers are kind of grappling with that. How do we kind of pursue that, what we traditionally have done, which is make better, faster, nicer, safer cars? And then also how do we respond to some of these new um, options for mobility and, you know, and, and the overall influence of, of things like AI, you know, artificial intelligence on, on both. Thank you, Heather. Yeah, the Larry, by the way, is oh, go ahead, Joe. Fairly re- I, the irony is that Mark Fields not that long ago said, and I'm quoting, it's clear that the next decade is going to be defined by the automation of the automo- automobile. So he said it, and now he's out. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's cause and effect, conclusion. Joe? Do you really think it's cause and effect, Joe? No, in this case, I think it was stock, val- stock value. <laughs> okay. Something a little higher up the... F- Little higher, yeah, yeah, a different, yeah, just not what he said. It's what either the impact of what he said or what was going on outside of what he said. Thank you very much, Larry. Love to get your thoughts. We're just about in the crystal ball predictions round, but Larry, I'd like you to have a moment to wrap up this part of our discussion because it was your topic, Larry Stoli. Well, you know, I, I think we really touched on the dilemma in the, in the last few minutes. It's one foot in the past and one foot in the future, and. I think, you know, over time those two things are going to come together and, and it's, you know, the what's cool today, what's cool tomorrow are, are going to be one thing. And that's going to be driven a lot by customer perception, by driver perception, by what drivers want, what drivers and owners think uh, about not only the product but about mobility and so on. So as we talk about this whole topic of drivers and product and mobility and so on, the future is going to be something really, really unique. It's going to be a stew, if you will, of tremendous amounts of different ingredients all plugged together. And what it's going to taste like in the future, I'm not really sure. But it will be an interesting treat, I'm sure. Larry, you just gave your prediction. So we're officially, really officially in the crystal ball <laughs> prediction round. Thank you very much. And Joe Barkai, I have 90 seconds for you. Joe, take a look at that crystal ball. I know you look in it very, very frequently. Let's focus about on or about the year 2020, if you don't mind, and tell me what yes, will be different um, about this so, conversation. Uh, happy to do that. So, yeah, we, we, we used to say 2020 because it was kind of a cool 2020 vision. Now it's seems too, too close. So many automakers actually now are using 20, 2021 as their target. But here's my crystal ball. I think we'll continue to see exciting innovation in technology, you know, with, with a healthy dose of confusion about what things really mean, what is AI, what is machine learning. But it will be exciting innovation and exciting demonstration of capabilities enabled by this innovation. Uh, and what will help the, drive this further is development and, and um, dropping cost of key sensing technologies like LiDARs and so on. However, and this is my point here, is that the adoption will not follow uh, the innovation at the same rate. I think the safety concerns are going to be a problem. The thorny question about ethical decisions will continue to plague us. Liability is going to be a problem. Uh, and we'll see. We'll start seeing more crashes. Uh, we'll, we should, I, in a way, in a funny way, I hope we'll see some of these assumptions tested in the court because we've never done this before. Mm-hmm. And, and the final point here is that the successful companies, in my opinion, will focus on special applications and microtransit, not on volume market. I don't think it's the Teslas of the world. I think it's the microtransit and special applications such as large 
campuses, uh, airports, ports, and so on. This is how we drive the technology forward, and this is how we encourage adoption, a point that Larry Sudley is coming back to from time to time. This is how we drive this uh, process forward. So at the beginning of the conversation, we may think that we have a clear vision of this brave new world, but the path will be much more challenging than most of us think. Thank you very much, Joe. And uh, no, no, more, no time to mute. Heather Ashton, I saved, oh, a whole two minutes for your prediction, Heather. Go for it. Go nuts with it today, Heather. What do you, what do you think? Um, so I, yeah, I think, I think in 2020, um, we are going to see some uh, crystallization. Look at that. I'm using crystal ball in another, in another way. I'm um, very impressed. Crystallization <laughs> of the of the purpose or the applications that are going to be, um, as Joe really identified some of them, right, um, most prevalent. I think what we're, what we're struggling with now, and even the regulatory group, I know the Department of um, Transportation, you know, they're kind of asking the car makers to explain to the American public why this, why this self-driving is so important. What is the benefit? Like, because there's so much skepticism in the market. And I think that's what's going to happen by 2020 is we're going to have a, you know, kind of crystallize some of these major benefits and these major initial applications and why they should come first, why they're so important, how they're going to serve the population, how they're going to solve problems. Um, So that is a big task because the automakers, you know, and the others in that industry are really going to have to be the leaders here because the average human doesn't really understand the capabilities of the technology, so they're not going to be able to, you know, understand or visualize themselves what that end game looks like. So I think by 2020, we're going to see that kind of crystallization of some of those use cases, as Joe said. I think another interesting area that will be um, potentially looked at for that first um, you know, kind of use case, set of use cases is around that first mile, last mile, as Joe said at the beginning of the conversation, because that is such a, a challenge. Um, when you think about tying this into urban transportation and smart cities, um, you know, kind of moving the people from that first mile, last mile to the public transportation as we continue to see the, you know, the, um, the populations expand within the cities around the world. So that is going to be, I think, an, a key area of focus. Thank you very much. I have a quick bonus question all the way around, and I just need a one-word or one-sentence answer from all of each of you because we're almost out of time. But I thought this would be fun. I think I asked this about a year ago, Larry, on one of your shows. Joe Barkai, then Heather Ashton, then Larry Stoley. If you had a smart car and it needed a pet name, what would you name your smart car so you could call it in the morning and say, hey, so-and-so, I'm ready to drive. Joe Barkai, what would your smart car be named? Quick, off the top. I don't, I don't name inanimate objects. Okay. That's, hey, no name. Okay. Heather Ashton, what will you name yours? Zip. Zip. I like that. Larry Stoley? Trigger. I'm a Roy Rogers fan. <laughs> I thought you were going to name it Yeti and then think the big tires on it will have a, a big foot on the road. I would name mine. Uh, uh, mine would just be red. You know that. Mine would just be a red. That's it. Just everything red. Thank you to the three of you. Joe Barkai, such a pleasure to have you back. Great insights, Joe, and energy. Heather Ashton, always fun to have you on the show and so many great insights from you. And Larry, what can I say? It's your show. Show up anytime you want. Thank you to Kevin, our engineer at World Talk Radio, for getting us on the air and keeping us there. And we had some wonderful tweets uh, from Stephen Thorne, my colleague at the Digital Digitalist Magazine at SAP, but also we had tweets from some newcomers. We had Organos Dogen. We had uh, somebody named Digital Period, 
And we had, if I can get my screen to roll up here, we had Jack Crumbly. Jack, thank you very much. And, and or, o, Oganos Dogan. Okay, I, I don't know if that's code for something, but thank you very much. So I want to thank all of you, and here's my call to action. And by the way, I'll be back at 12 noon. That's right, right here on the Business Channel with a new episode of Startup Focus with Game Changers, talking about entrepreneurs and new innovations coming to the consumer products industry. You don't want to miss that one. So here's my call to action. How appropriate. Larry, fasten your seatbelt. Even if you're in a smart car, you'll probably need one because trigger may not stop at all of the stop signs. Ha! What are you waiting for? Be like Larry, be like Heather, be like Joe. Go out and have a great day and be a game changer. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to the Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.